0: The following message is brought to you by George Lawson Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak.
1: So uh, why don't you take your Bibles with me and open up to Psalm 95, Psalm 95. Uh, Last week, I mentioned to you that we'd be holding off on our journey through the book of Romans until the beginning of the new year. Uh, We have a number of holidays uh, coming up like Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, as well as our mission Sunday and a congregational meeting. Uh, So we decided instead of uh, starting Romans and having to kind of start and stop that we just hold off until the... Till the new year, So that we didn't have to break up the flow of the book and I'm um, looking forward to starting that journey through Romans uh, with you at the beginning of the, the new year uh, But while we're preparing ourselves uh, for that introduction to the book of Romans uh, We'll be taking a, a few weeks to think through the question What does a faithful ministry look like and you could really expand that idea? Uh, to uh, to really encompass what does a faithful life look like? What are you responsible to God for? with your life? Uh, What are you on earth to do? Uh, What are you supposed to do with the life that God has given you? And hopefully what we'll cover in the next uh, few weeks will help to clarify and simplify uh, some of those ideas for you and uh, even give you some direction for uh, how you need to order your life and how you should think about uh, your responsibilities in this this earth. Uh, Because I think we can often make things uh, much more complicated than they, they need to be. And uh, if we were to take the teachings of Scripture uh, concerning how we are to live, uh, we could place all of our responsibilities under three primary relationships. Our relationship toward God, our relationship toward the church, and our relationship toward the unbeliever. What is our relationship toward God? What is our relationship uh, to those around us in the church? And what is our relationship uh, to the world on the outside? And I'm not saying that Uh, We don't have to wrestle with specific applications uh, of the truth, but our responsibility uh, in life could be summed up under one of those three headings, God, the believer, and the unbeliever. And that really sums it all up. We understand that there's an unseen world, uh, an angelic world, but uh, that's not our primary concern in the world. Uh, We don't have any responsibility to the angels. Angels are ministering spirits, according to Hebrews 1 and 14. Uh, We respect the role of angels, but we have no responsibility toward them. And uh, we know that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, uh, but we don't have any responsibility toward him either, other than to resist him and to stand firm against him. Uh, The primary relationships that God has called us to be concerned about are our relationship to him, our relationship to the believer, and our relationship to the unbeliever. And you could place every decision that you make under those three headings. And uh, for the believer, the first and primary responsibility that we have is towards the Lord. And what is our primary responsibility toward the Lord? We could sum it up with the word worship, with the word worship. Our primary responsibility to the Lord is to worship the Lord. MacArthur uh, calls it the the ultimate priority, our our supreme duty for time and eternity. We exist for the glory of God. That's what we were created for. Uh, There's absolutely nothing in creation that does not exist for the glory of God. Uh, The heavens exist for the glory of God. Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The earth exists for the glory of God. Isaiah 6.3 says uh, one angel called out to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels exist for the glory of God. Colossians 1.16 says for by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. It's all for his glory. The nation of Israel was created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43 and verse 1 says, But now, thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. And then down in verse 7, he says, And whom I have created for my glory. And even unbelievers will be forced one day to glorify God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even the unbeliever will one day recognize that God is worthy of glory. We all exist for the glory of God. So when we consider what is the priority of my life and what does God expect from me, we shouldn't expect anything different for us as a church than to glorify God. And actually, we read it in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, you know, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, over and over and over again. Actually, in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 12, it says that we are saved or predestined to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. The church exists for the glory of God. And if the glory of God does not drive a church, if it does not direct the church's activities, If a church does not demand that the glory of God take priority over everything else, the church has lost its very meaningful existence. The purpose for the church has been eradicated. We are here to worship and to glorify God. That's that's why we exist. Revelations chapter four and verse 11 says, worthy art thou or our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things and because of thy will they existed and were created. We have been created for the glory of God and the expressions of, of praise and worship and glory that we're called to offer the Lord are not optional. They're mandatory, mandatory. You know, sometimes we can think about invitations to, to worship as if they're merely suggestions. You know, we, we might invite someone to church and say, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you come and worship with us sometime. Or we might say, hey, if you don't have a church home, you know, we'd love to have you worship with us sometime. We'd like to invite you to come and worship. But it's important for us to understand that beneath that welcome to worship, there's also a warning to worship. Because God doesn't just desire That we would worship him, it's actually commanded that we would worship him. It's not just a delight that we worship God; it's a duty that we worship God. And we neglect this duty to our own destruction. Let's take a look at Psalm ninety-five because it really kind of focuses us uh, focuses us in on uh, this idea. Psalm ninety-five. Let's take a look at it, and we'll start at verse one. Psalm ninety-five. It says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, and a great king above all gods, and whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa, in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart, And they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter my rest. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And Father, we are so grateful for this, your word. Father, I pray that we would have a proper understanding of what we read. Father, that we would be cautioned by what we read. That we would understand that uh, what you give to us here is not just a suggestion, uh, but that it's a demand. Father, that uh, we're commanded to bow down before you, to come and worship you. It's a delightful invitation. We rejoice in it. But Father, there's also consequences if we disobey this command. So Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we examine uh, this text together now, Father, I pray that uh, you would open this up to us, and uh, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people. In Jesus' name, I praise you and give you thanks. Amen. There's two parts to this psalm. Two parts to this psalm. Uh, we have uh, uh, two sections that are so distinct that interpreters have uh, often suggested that they don't belong together, uh, that, you know, there's uh, half uh, uh, of the psalm that was written at a different time than the other half, and, you know, some compiler put them both together, but there can be no way that these two halves of the psalm actually belong as one unified whole, because the first half of the psalm, from verse 1 down to the middle of verse 7, is this joyful invitation, you know, I call this the, the welcome to worship, welcome to worship, in verse 1 it says, "'O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation.'" But the second part of the psalm issues a severe warning down in the second half of verse 7. It says, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa, in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. And you wonder, you know, how could these two sections of Scripture fit together into one psalm? You know, why would God attach a warning like this to an invitation to worship? You know, it's like sending out an invitation that says, you know, hey, come and worship with us or else, (laughs) you know, or like sending out a Christmas invitation that says, come celebrate with us, our God, or he'll be angry with you. You know, would God send out an invitation like that? You know, would God put both of those together? Yes, he would. Psalm 2, kiss the sun or do homage to the sun that he not become angry with you and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Matthew 22 uh, talks about the invitation to the son as a wedding feast. You know, come celebrate with me, my son. And for those that refuse to celebrate, he destroyed those enemies. Maybe we need to revise our our Christmas invitations, you know. You know, come, come, come worship on Christmas with us. Or you'll be sorry, (laughs) you know. But that's exactly what we find here. The, The two halves of this psalm are side by side. And more than that, they're wedded together as one unified message. Our God is worthy of glory. We invite you to worship before it's too late. Because one day it will be too late. Psalm 95 is both a welcome and a warning. As James Montgomery Boyce put it, it explains how and why we should worship, and it warns of what can happen if we do not worship, but harden our hearts instead. And regarding the context of the psalm, uh, the psalm uh, shows up in a collection of psalms that all point to the, to the kingship of God. Uh, psalms 93 through Psalm 100 have been called theocratic psalms, you know, the kingship of God, or enthronement psalms, because they speak about his sovereign rule. In Psalm 93, verse 1, it says the Lord reigns. And actually, you can flip, flip, flip through here with me just so you can see it. Psalm 93, in verse 1, it says the Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. If you look over at Psalm 94, in verse 2, rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. This is the one who, who judges, who oversees all the earth. And then in verse 10, it says he chastens the nations. Who will, will he not rebuke even he who teaches man knowledge? If you look over at Psalm 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, what? The Lord reigns. In Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. In Psalm 98, look at verse 5. It says, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. With the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. And then in Psalm 100 in verse 1, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come before Him with joyful singing and really kind of repeating some of the same ideas that have been mentioned in the other Psalms about coming before the Lord to serve Him because He is the King. And we often think about Psalms as disconnected, like this disconnected collection of poems, uh, but... They have the, uh, a common theme. There's some psalms that have this, this common theme that tie them together. And the focus here is on God is king. And what Psalm 95 does, does is it invites us to come and worship this king. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And the idea behind uh, this joyful singing and exuberant praise is that it's appropriate because of who God is. And there are four descriptions of God in the first half of this psalm that call forth praise. God is Savior, God is Sovereign, God is Creator, and God is Shepherd or the Sustainer of all life. Look at the first one. God is Savior. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says that, Come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Why is God worthy of joyful songs and psalms of thanksgiving? Number one, it's because he's the rock. He's the rock of our salvation. And normally when God is uh, pictured as a, as a rock, it speaks about his stability, you know, his protection, his safety, you know, like the rocks in the caves that protected, you know, David from, from King Saul when he was pursuing him. You know, the Lord, it says in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You know, God is a place of, of safety. But there also may be a different kind of reference here to God being a rock uh, because a few verses later in the Psalm, there's going to be a reminder of a different kind of salvation that Israel experienced. Why don't you take a look down at uh, at verse eight, Psalm ninety-five, and verse eight. It says, "Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness." And what did Meribah and Massa have to do with Iraq? Why don't you flip over to Exodus chapter seventeen? Exodus chapter seventeen, familiar story. You might remember this, but this place is Israel in the wilderness on the way to Sinai. They're barely out of Egypt at this point. And in Exodus chapter 17, they start to run into some problems. Take a look at it, Exodus 17. It says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord, and that's actually a good name for it, the wilderness of sin. The wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord encamped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled With Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The rock at Horeb became their rock of salvation. It was not a place of protection in this case, but a place of provision. And the rock sustained their lives in the wilderness. It was a rock of salvation. And, and David says that the appropriate response when God has provided salvation for us is for us to sing with joy. To shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And in the face of such a miracle, it would be completely inappropriate for the children of Israel to simply push their way through the crowd, you know, lap up some water without even recognizing that it was the Lord God who gave them their salvation. That would be totally inappropriate. You know, it's about time that we got some water out here and they just kind of push their way through the crowd, lap up some water and then move on. Totally inappropriate. The appropriate response is worship, that I would rejoice, that I would praise. Do you recognize that God is the rock of your salvation? Do you know that any time that you've ever been provided for, that you've ever been sustained, when, when you've been at the end of your rope and you don't know how am I going to make it, every time you've been saved from an enemy who is pursuing you, it's been the Lord every single time. Every time you faced anything, you've been rescued, that was the Lord. It's the Lord. And especially when we think about our spiritual salvation. Our salvation is all of the Lord. And back in Exodus, right after the children of Israel received the water of life from the rock, they were also spared from destruction because the Lord fought for them as the Amalekites came to destroy them. They were saved and Israel continued to be saved. They were saved from Egypt, they were saved from Amalek, they were saved from starvation, they were saved from dehydration, and the appropriate response to salvation would have been worship. It would have been right for them to call on others to come and celebrate with me. Let's, let's rejoice in God together. Let's, let's talk about the God of our salvation. Look at what wonders God has done. It would have been totally inappropriate not to give praise to God. It would have been worse than just rude, it would have been wicked. It would have been wicked not to praise God. And this is what the psalm opens up with. Oh, come, let us sing for joy. To the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. It would have been a delight to bring this praise to God, but it would have also been a duty to bring this praise to God. Again, someone who just experienced rescue from imminent danger, who folds his hands and refuses to acknowledge the God of his salvation is wicked, wicked. The Lord would be worthy of songs and praise and shouts of joy. To come before his presence in verse 2 could literally be translated, let us come before his face. We're recognizing him as the, the one who gives us the victory. But not only is God sovereign or a savior, he's also sovereign. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is the next point. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, In whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The Lord is not just described as as God and King, but as a great God and as a great king. It's a word that's been translated as mighty, great, high, prominent, rich, exceeding, far more, or in some places, just big. God is a big God. You know, our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. You know, the the word for, for great is actually big. God is a great God. Our God is a great God. Yes, he is, right? (laughs) Our God's a great God. And God is compared to the gods of the earth, not because they're given any kind of special recognition, but the so-called gods are compared with the true God to show them that they are false gods. And there's no other gods uh, that are to be comparable to the true and the living God. And that's the point that's made by picking the two extremes, the, the depths and the peaks, when it says, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. Uh, it's, it's what's called a, a merism, okay? Uh, where you take two opposite extremes or two contrasting you know, parts to refer to the whole. It's like when somebody would say, you know, I searched high and low. What are they saying? I've searched everywhere. Or when we talk about God as the God of the heavens and of the earth, we're saying that he's the God of... Everywhere, right? So, so it's using these contrasting parts to say that uh, he's the one who has the, the depths of the earth are in his hands and the peaks of the mountains are his also, to say that everything in between belongs to him too. We, we might say that, that uh, God is the one who's in control of all things. God is the one who, who has absolute authority over everywhere. He owns it all. In ancient mythology, the, the depths of the earth belong to Molech. You know, they they believe that the depths belong to Molech. He was depicted as a false god, you know, depicted as a a bull, you know, bull-headed god, Canaanite god, with his arms outstretched over the fire. They actually performed child sacrifice to Molech. He was a cruel god. But David says he doesn't rule the depths. God does. God God rules the depths. I've heard that the the Mariana Trench is 35,791 feet. (laughs) That's deep. (laughs) That's deep. Peaks of the mountains were said to be ruled by Baal. You know, the peaks of the mountains. That was one of the reasons Baal worship was actually conducted on the top of the mountains. They they went to the high places because they believed that he ruled over the heights. Baal was also depicted as a bull or a ram, considered to be the, the god of fertility, the god of the storm. He ruled over the peaks of the mountains. But David says, nope, that's where my God reigns. He rules over the peaks. You know, the highest mountain that we know of, you know, Mount Everest, 29,032 feet. I've heard that if Mount Everest was placed in the Mariana Trench, like if you were able, able to cut it off at its base, you know, flip it over, you know, stuff it into the Mariana Trench, that there'd still be a mile of water over Mount Everest. That's incredible. And God is in control of all of it. All of it. It doesn't matter where you look, the heights, the depths, they all belong to him. His hands form the dry land. The seas belong to him. There's no place for any other God to to reign. He owns it all. Everyone else is an imposter. Our God reigns. The whole earth is in his hands. He's got the whole world, right, in his hands. He doesn't just deserve glory for for that. He's not just the one who is the the Savior, the one who is the sovereign. He's also the one who's the creator, right? He's the creator. Look at verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6, it says, The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. There's a, a clear reference back to the creation account here where it talks about the, the dry land, you know, talking about referencing back to creation, uh, where uh, it says that his hands formed the, the dry land and Genesis 1 9 and 10 speaks about that. It was he who made it. You know, this is all the language of creation that's used here. You know, the sea is his, the, the land, the dry land is his, everything belongs to him. You know, all 370 quintillion gallons of water, you know, according to NASA, that's 370 with 18 zeros after it, gallons of water on the earth. It says the God did all of that. His, dry, his, his hands formed the dry land, 5.97 billion trillion tons of land mass. That's a lot of land. And God is just... Called it into existence. Let there be. And it exists. And it all belongs to him. And the act of creation doesn't stop there. Verse 6 takes us to the creation of mankind. Because he also made us. And that should be enough to do what? Bring us to our knees. And that's what verse 6 talks about. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. And the language of of worship that's used here in verse 6 is a solemn form of worship. Verse 1 begins with a joyful shout. By the time we get to verse 6, it's this kind of silent reverence that's communicated better with gestures than to say anything. Let's just come and bow down. Let's just kneel. You know, the word for worship actually means to bow down. That's what the word worship means. So it could actually be translated, you know, come let us bow down and bow down. (laughs) Let's get low. Both mean to get low, to prostrate oneself, worship. You know, to crouch down, to bow down. Get low and physically lowering oneself in the presence of a superior. It's the picture of kneeling to the ground with your arms stretched out and your nose touching the dirt. Like that's the kind of position, prostrating yourself before the Lord. Same language that we find with Abraham. He greeted his three heavenly guests in Genesis 18. He got low. Joshua realized he was before the captain of the Lord's host. He got low. It means to get low. And when you think that you've been created from the dust of the earth, it's not much of a problem for me to touch the earth, right? I mean, I too have been formed out of the clay, Job says. Job 33, verse 6. All that I am, all that I have comes from God. And that's why 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 says, Who regards you as superior? What, what do you have that you didn't receive? <laughs> and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Everything you have belongs to God. And contemplating our creation from the dust of the earth should bring us low. Like, like Lord, I don't deserve your mercies. I, I can't believe that you would, have, you would have thoughts towards me, that you would consider me. As low as I am, I've, I've come from the dust. And that you would consider me? That you would send your son to come and die for me? It's like, I'm not worthy of this, Lord. Lord. That you would give attention to me? After all the times that I've sinned against you and you would still turn back to me? should be enough to to, to bring you to silence, right? Like, Lord, I'm just so humbled. Like, like, I, I need to be low before you. And finally, our God is our shepherd as well. He's our shepherd. He's our savior, our sovereign, our creator. He's our shepherd verse 7 it says for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand when the the psalm speaks about God in this psalm there's a a use of the covenantal name for God Yahweh you'll actually find it a a number of times in in psalm 95 if you uh, look for the uh, kind of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You know, for some of you reading the LSB, it just says Yahweh. But you find it in verse 1. Oh, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. You find it again in verse 6. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Verse 3, actually, for the Lord. L-O-R-D is a great God. And that's, that's the word for, for Yahweh. The covenant name for God. That there's this relationship that God is saying that he has with his people. Covenantal language. That, that I will be your God. That you'll be my people. That I'll enter into a relationship with you. Ezekiel 34 and verse 30 says, Then they will know, talking about Israel as they return back, Then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, that I, that, that, that I the Lord, their God, am with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord. It's talking about this this covenant relationship, this relationship that he has with his people. And David reminds Israel that we are his people, and he's been faithful to keep his promises to us. The people of Israel are pictured here as sheep in the pasture, the sheep of his hand. There's a a particular care that's communicated in these words. One, One commentator says, pasture points to the general work of the shepherd, leading his flock from place to place, but the sheep of his hand is his particular care for the individual sheep as each passes under his hand and goes into the fold. And we are the sheep of his hand, that he knows us individually, gives individual consideration for each of us, that he checks on us, that he knows the condition of the sheep, he knows the condition of his flock. God knows what you're going through specifically, not just in general, he knows specifically what you're going through. He knows what nobody else knows about you. He knows more about you than you know about you. And as you're coming into the fold, it's like he checks you underneath his hand. He's the God who supports, who sustains, who shepherds his own. And the question is, would that not be enough for you to praise God? (laughs) To know that he gives that kind of attention to his creatures? For the creature to receive all of this from the hand of God and feel no obligation to return praise to him? Like I said, it would be worse than just rude. It would be wicked. It would be sinful. Glory is the right of the creator. The, the creature, for the creature not to give glory to the creator, is treason. Because to give glory to God is to give him what he's owed. Proper recognition for all that he is, all that he's done. God doesn't demand glory from us because it makes him feel better about himself. It's his right as the creator to receive glory. C.S. Lewis said, for God to require glory is not like some vain, insecure woman who demands compliments. Glorious is his right as the creator. And maybe some vain and insecure men too, right? Glorious is his right as the creator. How do you encounter the weight of this truth without feeling the urge to fall to your knees? Knowing how much God has cared for us, done for us, provided for us. God is speaking now here in the present tense after this verse, verse, verse 7, like I said, in the middle of verse 7, it makes this switch, you know, it says, it says, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, and then you get to this, the middle of verse 7, it says, today, if you would hear his voice, today, God is speaking, he's saying today, if you would hear his voice, today. But my question is, how does God do that today? How does God speak to his people today? How did God speak to his people during the time that David would have written this? Because he wrote it. And then as they're reading it, it says today. So as they're reading it, they're thinking about in the present tense, like right now, God is speaking. How was God speaking? Same text is quoted in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. Flip over there real quick. The author of of Hebrews is reciting David, who would have written this psalm sometime before 971 B.C., and the book of Hebrews would have been written about 67 to 69 A.D., over a thousand years later, and the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 3 and verse 7. Listen to what he says. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice. So here you have the author of Hebrews speaking a thousand years later after David and using the same language saying that God is speaking today. Today, if you would hear his voice. So my question is: how is God speaking today? Are we supposed to look for some kind of you know prophet or apostle or you know, word of knowledge or wisdom, or some impression, you know, internal impression that the Lord is speaking to me? You know, I just got this laid on my heart, God is speaking to me. No. How was God speaking? It was through the word of God, through what he just said. He's saying, if you're reading this, today, God is speaking to you. Today. As you read this, this is God's communication. Do I believe that God still speaks today? Yes, I do. But how do I believe God speaks today? It's through his word. It's through God's word that God speaks, and we can still hear his voice. We can still hear his voice. I love what uh, uh, Justin Peter said. He says, if you want to, you know, listen to the voice of God today, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read it aloud. (laughs) If you want to hear him speak audibly, read it out out loud. That's how God is speaking today. It's through his word. Yes, God is still speaking. And here's the the warning that's given. For those who are listening to this today, here's the warning, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. And we've already turned to this passage earlier in Exodus 17. But uh, what you remember back in that passage is that the people were quarreling with Moses about wanting water. And Moses is saying, why are you quarreling with me? Why are you testing the Lord? It's not about me. You're testing God. And he named that place Massa, which means to test and Meribah, which means to strive or to contend. And this is this, this little rebellion against Moses and his leaders was actually a cosmic rebellion against God. God's saying they're contending with me, they're, they're putting me to the test. And, and God is saying, Don't be like them. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. And just here, and you might not have noticed this switch in the Psalm, but but l- l- listen, to, listen to Psalm 95 again. Today, if you would hear his voice, right? So so David speaking about God's voice. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as in the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. And it's like God picks up the pen from David and says, okay, I'm doing it now. I'm gonna talk directly to them. They are testing me. Speaking directly for himself. Your fathers tested me. And it was all this hardening of the heart, a stubborn resistance against the will of God. And God says, They did all this even though they saw my work. God is saying, What what Israel has done is they've hardened their hearts against me when they've seen my works, they've seen my deeds, they've seen my signs. They witnessed the power of the plagues in Egypt. They experienced all the deliverance in the Red Sea. They tasted of my goodness. They ate the manna that fell from heaven. And now they have the nerve to say, is God with us or not? Have you seen what I've done? Look at all the works that I've done. And God didn't call this weak faith. He called it a hardened heart. After all that I've done, you think I need to prove myself to you again? You don't need another miracle from the heavens. You need a miracle of a changed heart. That's what you need. They hardened their hearts and they went astray in their hearts. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart. Literally to go astray. And God says, you've hardened your heart against me after all that I've done for you. And you have not known my ways. End of verse 10. They do not know my ways. That word for ways is the Hebrew word derek. It means uh, it speaks of a road, a path, a manner of life. And God is saying that when you go astray in your heart, you go astray in your living. You go astray in your heart, you harden your heart, you'll go astray in your living. So you have to guard your heart, right? Guard your heart with all diligence, you know, the Proverbs talks about. Psalm 81 verse 13 says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. That their way of life would be, you know, in alignment with my word. But here, Israel didn't know God's ways. They didn't walk in God's ways. They strayed in their heart, and as a result, they strayed in their actions. They didn't think correctly about God, and therefore, they didn't live correctly before God. Instead of recognizing God as the Savior, the Sovereign, the Creator, the Shepherd, they begin to believe that they deserve better than what God has given them. They put God underneath the microscope. Instead of God being the judge, they're the judge. You know, God, we've we got to put you to the test. You know, I've got some things that I, you know, I think could be done a little bit better. You know, we might need some new management here. And they begin to judge God. And all of a sudden, God's not measuring up. He's not working fast enough. I'm not receiving the answer to my prayers quick enough. He's not changing my circumstances. He's not removing my temptations. And now I'm struggling with the goodness of God. So they went astray in their thoughts. They started to judge God. God is... God is not coming through. You know, here we are. He he knows we're thirsty. (laughs) He knows we have needs. And God has put us in this position. And he's not coming through for us. So they begin to judge God, and now they begin to distrust God. You know, maybe God isn't going to answer this prayer. Maybe God's left me with no other choice. You know, maybe my ideas aren't really all that wrong anyway. And I'm not really sure if his word is really all that reliable. You go astray in your heart. You begin to distrust God, start trusting in your own self. They go astray in their hearts, and finally they go astray in their action. The entire life is lived in contradiction to the will and to the word of God, and they're wanting to go back to Egypt. And that's where they ended up. And don't miss the connection here. This is all connected to worship. (laughs) That's where the psalm started, remember? Started talking about worship. This is all connected to worship. This is what happens when people harden their hearts against the worship of God. Because if you truly praise God, if you truly rejoice in God, who is your savior, your sovereign, your creator, your shepherd, you're not going to harden your heart against him if you're truly praising him. It's the worship of God that guards us from apostasy. Refusing to submit to God's will is a worship problem. Refusing to believe in God's word is a worship problem. Refusing to obey God's ways is a worship problem. And what are the results, the tragic results And this is the woe and the the wrath for those who refuse to worship. Look at verse 10. He says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. That, That just sounds bad, doesn't it? I loathed. It's a word that literally means to feel disgust. A feeling of disgust. In Ezekiel 20, verse 43, it speaks about the time that Israel will be restored. And it says, there you will remember your ways, your deeds, with which you have defiled yourselves And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. It's it's talking about like this kind of personal disgust and hatred. Like I can't stand it. And God says, as I looked at this generation for 40 years, I just couldn't stand it. I loathed that generation. Personal disgust, even hatred. God speaks about Israel during these 40 years of wandering. He says, I loathed them. And here's the worst of it in verse 11. He says, Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. And that's the final nail in the coffin. And God could have just said, They'll not enter into my rest. And it would have been doubly certain for him to say, Truly they will not enter into my rest. But he says, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. There's no coming back. Flip over to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Because God says this after the, the 12 spies returned from the land of Canaan, you remember that? Ten returned with an evil report, and only two came back with any positive things to say, anything positive to say. In Numbers chapter 14, take a look at verse 22. Numbers 14, verse 22. Listen to this, surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. That was a reference to the promised land. And the entire generation that did not trust in God, did not believe in God, did not follow the ways of God, did not enter into the rest of God. But that's not the only generation that's in danger of falling into the same temptation. Because David speaks in his day, and he says, Today, if you would hear his voice. So he's speaking, you know, over some four hundred years later, and he's saying that, "Hey, we're still in danger of that today." And then the author of Hebrews picks it up a thousand years after David and says, "Today, if you would hear His voice." And in a similar way, as we're reading the Word of God, we can say the same thing to you: "Today, if you would hear His voice, we're still in danger of violating this command." What's the connection? The children of Israel in Moses' day were in danger of not entering the rest of the promised land. Children of Israel in David's day were in danger of not keeping their rest in the promised land. And the Hebrews in the New Testament were in danger of not entering into the rest of eternal life. And Hebrews was written to an older group of Jewish converts who suffered some persecution for the faith. And the natural temptation for them was, why don't we just go back into Judaism? Like, like we've, we've, we've suffered enough here. Suffered enough trying to live for Christ. Why don't we just go back to Judaism? It's better back there. And that's why there are so many admonitions in the book of Hebrews. Don't go back. Don't return. Chapter two, verse one, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. Chapter three, verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Chapter four, verse one, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may come short of it. Chapter 1035, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Chapter 1225, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God is speaking. Don't refuse him. He's talking to you. Are you getting the picture? And the cry of the Israelites was, give me Egypt. What what use is the promised land if we die out here in the wilderness? The attitude of Esau was, give me the meal, Jacob. What use is a birthright if I die of hunger? The cry of the Jewish people was, you know, give me that old-time religion. What use is this Christianity if we suffer for it? And the same could be true for Christians today. To say, like, I don't, I don't know if, like, following Jesus is really worth it. And I use Christians in air quotes. Because <laughs> if you're truly a member of the body of Christ, you can't, you know, remove yourself. You know, uh, he has begun a good work and you will complete it till the day of salvation. But for those who would call themselves Christians... Loosely attached to the church. When they start experiencing suffering, persecution, that they're tempted to leave. Because it's not worth it anymore. But that is a problem of worship. (laughs) And that's what I want to bring around to you. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And maybe you might not have made this connection before. I know I didn't. But in Hebrews chapter 10, you really have a similar call as what we have in Psalm 95, Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 23. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you know what the author of Hebrews is saying? Uh, we welcome you to worship. <laughs> We're inviting you to worship. Like there's, there's safety in the worship of the saints together. There, there's something that's, that's, that's securing about being together with the saints. This is the call to worship. Come and worship. Why? Because Isolation is the friend of apostasy. When people isolate themselves, and actually, it was I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who says that Satan likes to get a man alone. He wants to get a man alone. But there's something that the Lord uses in the fellowship of His people as we gather together for worship that encourages us and actually is a warning for us. So we invite people to come and worship. Come and worship. But we also give people the warning, because if you refuse to worship, if you refuse to to hold on to the confession firm until the end, that you could be in the same danger today, (laughs) just like they were in this day, of not entering into his rest. Entering into his rest, that's a promise for worshipers. That's for worshipers. And I pray that everybody here is a worshiper. (laughs) that we come and gather together to worship our great God. He is our sovereign. He is our savior. He is our creator. He is our shepherd. He's the one that we come to, and he's the one that we give all worship and honor to. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. Uh, Father, we pray that you would use your word to speak to us today. Uh, Father, we're grateful that this is not just a word for uh, those uh, during uh, the time of David. It's not just a word for those during the time of the Hebrews, uh, but this is a word for the church today. And Father, there might be some among us who are not truly worshipers, uh, that they're not worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. Uh, Father, that they uh, haven't seriously considered uh, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and uh, even what that says about their own lives. Uh, but Father, we have the, the call to come. <laughs> come. Come. Come worship our Lord with us. And even we find the words of of Jesus that the Father seeks those who would worship him. The Father is seeking worshipers, those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. So, Father, I pray that as we gather together, that it would be for the right purpose of glorifying our great God, that we would sing for joy to the God, the rock of our salvation, and that we would also get low that we would worship, that we would bow down, that we would kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.
0: You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.